Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is sponsored by our mates at Keep Cup, a company who know that the small act of using a reusable coffee cup can make a big difference in reducing waste. Keep Cup have so many colours, sizes and types of cups to choose from. Our office has a communal Keep Cup collection, complete with a matching carry bag, which is the perfect accessory for the morning coffee run. Keep Cup are also a B Corp, which means they have environmental and social concerns at the heart of everything they do. Learn more about B Corps and Keep Cup by visiting dumbofeather.com forward slash buy better by B. Hi there, I'm Nathan Scolaro from Dumbo Feather, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. This month, we're bringing you a conversation from issue 55 of Dumbo Feather magazine with the director of Local Futures, Helena Norberg-Hodge. As a young woman in 1975, Helena was invited to join a film crew travelling to Ladakh a remote region on the Tibetan Plateau, just as it was opening up to tourism and other Western influences. She witnessed the devastating changes that followed and documented it all in her book, Ancient Futures, which challenges many of the conventional ideas we have around progress and development. Helena chats with our publisher, Barry Liberman, about why community is central to building the next economy and why we need to lean in and listen to ancient wisdom and carry it into the future. I'm super thrilled to listen and learn and ask you the questions and deep dive with you. Great, you know, because, yeah, anyway, it's, you know, as you know, it's rare that people are in the position to think about the state of the world and to really try to figure out what's the best thing we can do. Tragically, most people are just running, running, running right now. And so I'm thrilled that you have that, that you're in that position. So it's just fabulous and that you're a woman. (laughs) tell me actually let's start there i think that's a really wonderful place to start what does that mean that people don't have time to think about the state of the world because of the pace of our lives what does that mean to you and and why are we there so uh, what it means is that we're in this very frightening situation where In order to really understand what's going on in the world today, we need to step back and try to understand from a holistic point of view why we seem to be in perpetual crisis. And that requires that reflection, it requires the willingness and and the time to do that. And unfortunately, the dominant pressures are pushing people to run faster and faster just to survive. But people are also running faster and faster because they've been made to feel worthless 
if they're not running fast, I mean, there's literally a sort of ethos of being busy, showing that you're important. So there are these huge structural pressures in the mainstream culture that are pushing people in, in this direction of running blindly. And I see it also a way in which people in power, as they move up the ladder, they're dependent on mediated information, and that is extremely dangerous. There's very little experiential knowledge to inform their decisions and to inform them about what is actually going on in the real world. It's touching a lot of acupressure points in me right now because we were talking uh, at Small Giants in the office about how we have to be fierce to protect our time. And I was saying one of my colleagues is spending half of her time as a, um, a Buddhist practitioner. So she's decided half of her life will be devoted to her spiritual practice and half of her life devoted to her, her business practice and has, you know, has business partners and colleagues that they all understand that half the time she'll be on silent retreat and etc. And we were laughing about the fact that we, you have to be fiercely Zen. Yes, that's right. And I, I've long, long time ago when I was sitting around the hundredth or thousandth table with environmentalists and concerned people, and we were all talking about the urgency of situation, and yet we all know that the wisdom teachings tell us to slow down. And so again, I've been talking about, you know, the need to speed up in order to allow the whole planet to slow down. But in our personal lives, I've been recommending what I call, you know, jokingly, creative schizophrenia, where we ensure that, yes, for part of the day or part of the year, we need to be in the modality of the dominant system, but we have to be sure that we remember what it is to be human and to slow down, and whether that is practicing, you know, Buddhist in Buddhist retreat, whether that is hiking out in nature, the meditation, the yoga, the singing. I have it very built into my life here now, uh, you know, with singing twice a week, drumming once a week, yoga. So we need to, we need to do that. But there are lots of paradoxes, including another one, you know, that I talk about, which is promoting small scale on a large scale. Hmm. So this is a wonderful topic in and of itself. If we can stay slightly abstract and philosophical for a moment, because I know you have so much practical knowledge and I love the way you talk about we need to live in the modality of the main operating system. It's a wonderful way of saying it because I think most of us in the modern world, in the Western world, as you said, are living at a pace that is externally determined that is culturally determined, and it takes a fierce amount of personal uh, work to be able to stop that tide and that treadmill and get off it and say, actually, this is the life that I want to live and the pace I want to live it with my children, with my family, and it's going to require structural changes to my daily life and to the meta pace of my life. And I think... A topic that is coming up again and again for me is the idea of paradox and how unused to that topic we are, that we are also culturally being trained to be monocultural. Yes. Can you, yes. Can you talk to that? Yes. Well, yes, I see. I would say particularly another way to look at it 
it's accepting a type of compromise and a type a type of recognizing that we're dealing with these complex issues and complex realities and we can't have simple black and white answers which again is another reason why it requires more time to actually step back and to see this the complexity and the systemic and process nature of reality and this is something that you know buddhism and wisdom teachings remind us of that nothing exists in isolation and in, in a you know in, in another another way of saying it is to say nothing exists but that's not actually what buddhism is teaching but anyway so we we are uh, we, we need to really um, be willing to accept that there will be paradox, there will be compromise, and that we cannot follow this simplistic, linear, reductionist view of the world if we want to, either if we want to be sane and healthy in ourselves, or if we want to contribute to a sane and healthy world. Um, I've read Ancient Futures, and I love the title so much, and I love the book so much, and I would tell anyone reading this or listening to this to immediately go out and get a copy. It's a very important book, and I, and I was quite surprised by how much it impacted me because it is a story of your life in Ladakh on the Tibetan Plateau when you were a young woman in the 1970s before the first road was built into this ancient mountain culture. How old were you? Was it 1976, the year before the first road? No, no it was 1975 and it was a road. It was a road, but no one had been allowed to travel on it except for military. because they, So the region was closed off for political reasons. There had been a road built in over high Himalayan passes um, already in the late 60s, um, but for political reasons, this part of Tibet belonging to India, and the Indian government being um, extremely nervous of, of spying and of any movement on the borders, because all the borders were disputed, on the one side to Pakistan, on the other side to Chinese Tibet. Um, so, yes, it was the mid-70s, and I was about 30. Who were you walking into Ladakh? What what was you, what had you been studying? What had you been working in? And, and what was your context to get there? And why were you there? I was already a very uh, sort of cosmopolitan, rarely cosmopolitan for for my generation. Yeah. So my I had grandparents that were you know sort of Swedish, English, German, Swiss origin and my parents had both grown up in Sweden. I had grown up primarily in Sweden, but I had also lived in America and had studied in Germany, in Austria, in France, in Italy. I was very interested in the arts, in philosophy, in psychology. I had studied all of those that had ended up becoming a linguist, mainly because I was interested in understanding different worldviews and different cultures, and I loved, at that age, I had very much enjoyed encountering different cultures and had been very mind-opening to me already to have those experiences. And I was living in Paris, working as a linguist, not at all ambitious in terms of um, career or anything. I was working 
mainly part-time as a linguist, and I was asked to go to this place called Ladakh as part of the film team, and because I picked up languages very easily, they wanted me to come along and help with the sound for the film, but also to facilitate communicating with people, and I actually hesitated, because by that time, I was already feeling a bit uprooted, and it was quite convenient being in Paris between Germany, Sweden, and England. And But then when I learned more, and in fact my German grandfather said, oh, you absolutely must go, it's one of the most fascinating places in the world. And uh, But anyway, I became more and more interested. I went, but I thinking I was only going for six weeks. And um, then even before we arrived in Ladakh, we were in Kashmir, and I remember seeing these beautiful Tibetan women sitting on the ground selling sweaters, and they were just radiantly beautiful and smiling, even though the Kashmiris were haggling with them over prices. And Anyway, so I was so attracted even before we arrived, and then the beauty of the landscape was just, it's a, it's a painter's landscape. You know, you have these high snow-capped glaciers, and then you've got below that these rainbow-colored mountains, like literally in the most, you know, sort of iridescent purple and green, and in, in this sort of, it's also a geologist's paradise. And then below that, you could often have sand dunes. And then below that, these irrigated green fields that were like emeralds in the, in the desert. And then, of course, you know, exquisite architecture that dated back many of the buildings more than a thousand years, still standing proud. And now this is something that you really don't experience in most parts of the world anymore. You know, the, the, the right for people to have developed architecture and styles that have lived through the centuries and that have survived colonialism. So the whole, it was just you know, an amazing, almost like a dream-like landscape. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm thinking of so many things while you're talking. First, I'm wondering, where did you get such a romantic spirit? Where does that come from? Uh, romantic in the sense of, I guess I've been described as being, you know, extremely sensitive. Yes. Overly sensitive. Overly sensitive. And I think, because when I was a child, I remember, you know, like age six or something, or maybe even a bit later, or even now as an adult, watching films, when there's a sad scene, I'd be crying so much that everybody else would start laughing because they would spoil it for them, you know, I'd be crying so much. And I think... Yeah, even now, even the kitschiest film that's badly acted, I'll get really involved. And my husband says he feels that if I had not had such a great deal of sensitivity, I also wouldn't have been able to adapt into Ladakhi culture and see it so much sort of through their lenses. So I am extremely sensitive and introspective. You know, that's why I was interested in psychology. It's a wonderful, wonderful analogy or answer or examination of um, just the kind of person the world needs right now. You've been um, a sensitive human being, 
um, alert to emotional nuance and uh, landscape nuance and you're alert to your environment and you're alert to the relational links between human beings and between human beings and nature. And in that awareness, you've been able to think from a slightly aerial perspective at the same time of the metastructures that hold us and connect us or disconnect us. And on that basis, I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated that you just said what you said um, because people often say to me, oh, to be sensitive is, is a negative thing in our world because you oh. will get crushed by the world. Oh, oh, heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Yeah, really heartbreaking. Although I would say that uh, in my case, I almost need to practice slightly less empathy and I really have to try to train myself and there is a way in which to stay calm, serene and joyous at our core despite seeing, you know, illness, suffering around us. I used to feel, yeah, my ideology was very much no. I don't want to be a person like that who can stay completely happy and serene at my core when I'm seeing suffering. Now I'm beginning to see, yes, there is a a great need to, especially as we face uh, crises coming our way, we really need to train ourselves to be as as healthy and happy at our core as possible, but not at the expense of shutting out the rest of the world. And I'm afraid that I see a lot of, in the Western world, as people discover the tools of inner peace and joy, they tend to seal themselves off from the outside world. And they focus too much on the idea that through my spiritual training, I will create that peace, that inner peace, which will then allow me to deal with the world's problem. But of course, we never get there. And part of the reason we don't get there is because the outer and the inner are completely intertwined, inextricably intertwined. And so the idea that we're going to create peace in the world by just working on our individual inner world and not pay attention to the relational side and not pay attention to also these structural changes, including the technologies and economic pressures, uh, for me, I'm trying to encourage, no, we need to pay attention to both, which is this very conscious shift towards creating stronger community-based structures, you know, and, and as an economic path, localizing is demonstrating that we can, um, you know, pay attention to the outer structures as well as the inner structures on that level, on the community level. Coming from a Swedish context culturally as a child, if that's the case, and then be sort of finding yourself in Ladakh as an adult, in that comparison, for lack of a better world, between Sweden, which is such a progressive northern western country, and Ladakh and the book and now, what were the wisdom of the ancient cultures has been discarded and annihilated and we're heading towards an unknown future, you have these incredible cross-cultural influences. What did you get from both those contexts and how did they inform your time in Ladakh and your your journey afterwards? I went back 
And um, and what is the book Ancient Futures about? What did you find when you were there and what was so unique about that that experience? What I found over the time was above all people who radiated a lightness of being and joie de vivre like I had never encountered anywhere in the world. I I saw that there was no hunger, there was, you know, nobody was overweight, nobody was uh, too thin, uh, wiry and, and slim and healthy, many people in their 80s. I saw, um, you know, these incredible, beautiful houses that most people had and realized that poverty, as I had known it, is a consequence of a type of colonialism and economic uh, growth. It's not a natural state of affairs. I saw and got to know people who also had the most brilliant sense of humor and and also who were so incredibly alert and um, awake. For instance, over the years later on, so I ended up staying you know, for, for two years, but then I was returning every year for half the year for at least the next decade. And um, and I found that when friends would visit from other countries, the Ladakhis would pick up on character traits and someone's inflection in their voice or their gait or something. Things I had never noticed. There was, there was just um, people who were very much so alert and so, um, yeah, a type of intelligence that I hadn't experienced anywhere else. There was a lot in the book that was very moving to me. I thought maybe it would be a slightly Orientalist perspective. You know, there's always a danger of a beautiful white woman uh, from the Western world coming to an incredibly exotic place and being completely astonished at the wealth of wisdom in this ancient culture. I read Tarzan recently. It is the most lyrical, incredibly well-written, profoundly racist, uh, colonialist, appalling novel to read it today is to be like deeply shocked and absolutely alerted to how the slave trade was the way it was uh, and how we have allowed ourselves to be so unexamined in our colonialist perspective maybe you can speak to how do we get to ancient futures without idolizing the old world. You know, so many people say, but we have modern medicine and we've come so far and we're in the fourth industrial revolution. There's so much good in the world. The world's never been this good, is so many argue. What is your argument coming out of that context, aware of a colonising, you know, um, preconditioning, and how do we get there without idolising or making, orientalising and making things up? Well... One thing I think is key in all of this is to first of all recognize that we have now developed into much more sensitive, kind, and um, and wise people in Western culture. I mean, in Victorian age, you know, represented the most appalling values, total rejection of, of you know of the body, of the senses, of ecology and of ecological tribal people. We have changed dramatically away from that. 
But the big day, so let's not take on that guilt. Let's now look at the world, not from the point of view of the politics of identity. Let's start examining what, what are the values, what is the worldview of the people we're working with. And for me, one of the movements that gives me more joy than anything is the New Farmers Movement. And, and there is a very large proportion of Westerners who are um, passionate about going deeply into nature, using their bodies, you know, essentially living the life of, of indigenous people. However, having said that we've changed a lot, there is still there are still ways that we can carry certain prejudices and particularly we take on a worldview which continues to inundate us with thinking that prevents us from really valuing who we are when we take that and peoples who are living closer to the land. So Ancient Futures is a book that definitely offers an insight into what are the key elements we can learn that we must take into the future. Because we're talking about understanding that the dominant trajectory is taking us so far away from nature that it's become anti-life. It cannot tolerate diversity. It's a monocultural system, both monoculture in terms of the economy and biological production, but also human monoculture. So here we're talking about ancient futures is what, what is the view, what is the perspective, and what are the structures that can help us to support genuine diversity. And one of my insights in Ladakh was talking about genuine diversity goes down to genuine individualism. How can we raise our children in a way where they can feel truly okay with who they are as an individual? Helena, as you started talking about nature and diversity, about six different kinds of birds started to call <laughs> outside your window because you're in an incredible environment up in Byron Bay in the hinterland. So it's... Uh, it was just really beautiful. I just noticed nature calling loudly out the window while we <laughs> while we were uh, speaking about nature as a structural um, imperative. So, so yes. Yeah, so, can you speak to that question about how we can rethink economics in the face of where we stand? In my experience, part of what needs to happen is to understand the economic system that is oppressing us so much requires a bit of a global view. And I actually see right now as one of the biggest constraints that people are locked into a local view, a national view which is being framed by what we might think is national media, but it's actually global media conglomerates. So we're locked into a, a view of the world, and unfortunately that view of the world is also spreading through mainstream academia, mainstream science, and that view is encouraging now, in a very sophisticated way, mega urbanization linked to mega globalization, whereby we are importing and exporting the same products in larger and larger numbers. So the U.S. exports about a billion tons of beef, turns around and imports about a billion tons of beef. The U.K. exports as much milk and butter as it turns around and imports with rapid it's absolutely insane, but it's the logic of the dominant global economic system that has come to dominate 
our worldview and and also our governments. So we have we have a job, a big job in rethinking this, and it means being better informed about the realities of what's going on in that system. Uh, but it is one of the most important central issues of our time because, you know, rethinking the economic system without an understanding of the deeper psychological and ecological realities is quite dangerous, actually. How do we do it? How do we, how do we, I mean, what you're talking about frightens me and inspires me in equal measure because I think I agree. I mean, Everything about Western culture now has been about the annihilation of the inner life, um, coming out of having seen what happened when the culture you were in in Ladakh was perverted by these meta structures we all live in and don't question that much. We're questioning it more now with the Wall Street crash of 2008 and Donald Trump and so we're in a state of questioning. But how do we get to where we're going? And if what you're saying is we get to where we're going by incorporating a deep reverence of nature, and then you're saying we need to connect with our inner lives as well as connecting with nature. The two are connected, I believe. As you said, we need to be on those first two principles before we redesign the economy because we should be coming from a place of reverence and self-awareness before we design the the systems. I have been just passionate about trying to raise awareness about that all the evidence I get everywhere in the world is the main reason it's continued to escalate is ignorance. It's not some deep embedded human greed. That's not what's driving this. What's driving it is that most people from the bottom to the top are not looking at this bigger system. And there are no winners in the system. You know, I want to say to every CEO, why on earth would you support an economic car that is the biggest threat to your job? Because it's the game of mega mergers into becoming more and more giant, becoming bureaucracies that are worse than any communist bureaucracy you've ever seen, being an appendage to a big machine. Who wants to be an appendage to a big machine? You know, there, it's, there are no winners, and I really feel that this path uh, of mega, mega mergers, mega everything, that is so dehumanizing, um, nobody would want it if they understood it, and particularly they wouldn't want it if they had the opportunity to experience the joy and the beauty of something more human. So for me, it's all about ignorance, 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 and the answer is big picture, big picture, big picture. You talk when you were talking in your TED talk about the drone economy. I want to tell you what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You said our arms have become so long they don't know what our hands are doing. Yeah, yeah. Our arms have become so long we can't see what our hands are doing. That applies even you know, to the individual consumer. My God, you go to the supermarket and you try to read the label and to what is actually happening on the other side of the world. You know, is this mistreating the labor? Is it poisoning the ground? How do you know? Who's providing the information? And the same thing, I remember meeting the head of the Gap in uh, California and who was you know, absolutely furious at the idea that they weren't looking after their their workers in, in Southeast Asia. He said they regularly sent people over there 
And of course, when you go on the ground, what you discover is that when they send people over to check things, people are told to shut up or else they'll be out. So they can't get accurate information. The accurate information requires more of that intimacy. It requires not something that can be a snapshot, and that requires people on the ground. So you need longer-lasting relationships, and of course, uh, you know, it's both the question of uh, the time pressures as well, of course, feed into this. Uh, time pressures, and yeah, we, you're saying we need human structures, we need human systems, we need to revalue the things that make us more human, the, the things that make life worth living. Yeah. But how do you have scale and intimacy? They don't work. Or is it a paradox that does? Oh, no, no. When I say scale, I'm talking about we need human scale. The dominant economic system is fundamentally destroying and undervaluing everything that we care about. And one of the things that it's doing is to destroy human labor and intelligence and to replace it with energy and technology. So, And that means as we become more and more dependent on techno systems, we, ha- we reduce the ratio of doctor to patient, teacher to student, you know, psychologist to, to patient. It's just such a tragedy and it's at such a huge cost. And then, you know, it used to be you go to the doctor and he would be spending half an hour with you and looking at you and knowing you. Now it's been reduced to five minutes and he's looking at his computer the whole time. However, around the world, there are alternatives. Most of them are becoming so-called elitist because it's only by putting more money into it that people can afford to have more holistic health care or uh, you know, friends are setting up an alternative school situation where there are, you know, six adults to 20 children. When I say, you know, we've got to go fast and we've got to go slow, it's that we would divide our day up, you know, when we're spending our time on the internet, sending emails and trying to plow through the podcasts and the writings and so on, we've got to put on our analytical hat then I'm going to be out there moving, I'm going to be walking, I'm going to be totally taking off this super intellectual hat and become embodied, really go deep down, and where, you know, where I can feel the difference in my brain and body when I become more whole. So we're, it's like almost like saying, okay, this is like my military service to try to, to make the world a better place. Huh. And, and, and I saw the Ladakis doing this, even in conversation. You know, you'd be talking to them and they'd be saying, you know, where did you go today? And then, oh, my home, you know, with, this, with the prayer wheel. And, you know, at that moment, you're going, oh, my home. And the mantra, your brain waves are literally different from when you get into a conversation, uh, you know, using language. In that way. So we, we have to learn the art of moving in and out of that more meditative state. And part of it means, you know, dividing our day also. Or, or if it's not our day, periods of the year. I feel, I think the way I've been able to continue so actively for 40 years was that for many years I was living at a different pace 
and and sort of out, outside of the reaches of this system. And that's also made me even now able to keep to keep a bit of a distance. You know, like I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Instagram, I don't I have been able to keep a little bit of a, a shield while still being committed to trying to get uh, a different a different vision out. And and also I should say that in terms of what I'm saying, you know, my sort of advice to people is number one, connect. Connect with some like-minded individuals, even if it's just two or three or even one other person. We don't realize the extent to which people who are pursuing this path towards nature, towards community, often feel like they're the only ones in the world. And, and, and as that sort of that lonely path, oh, well, it's very disempowering. And then the second thing we say is educate. Keep in mind that you have been so indoctrinated with ideas and assumptions about yourself, about the world, that need to be rethought. We talk about rethinking basic assumptions. We need to be clear about what we want to say no to and what we want to affirm and value. And, and then finally, be very clear about the need to celebrate, to, to allow ourselves to celebrate life as it is right now, when we're reading the newspaper, hearing about one crisis after another, it's so easy to become depressed about the state of the world. Reflect on the miracle just of your hands, the muscles in your hands working, the miracle of that tree outside, the, the miracle of life and treasuring and valuing life and celebrating. This is what we did for our evolution. We can recover and celebrate right now in the midst of our daily lives in the biggest cities, wherever we are. No, well, there are so many tangents for us to go into. And I think, so maybe I'll ask you one last question because we haven't spoken about the feminine and the masculine and your observations of the, that in Ladakhi culture. And Yeah, what, uh, what was extremely eye-opening was to realise that in this ancient community-based uh, culture, that women actually had a much stronger position than in my native Sweden. But it became so clear to me that what gave women such a strong position was deeply embedded already in having a culture that operated at a slower pace, a way of life where you move all the time, so you're using your body is actually, and that's not a sign of poverty, that's a sign of wealth. So using your body and you know, women would be out in the garden or on the farm literally the same day that they gave birth. And I, I saw above all that every mother had something like 10 living caretakers for every baby. They included older siblings, including the boys. That was another very important part of it. They included uncles and aunts. And, of course, that meant that when the child was ill or difficult, no one had to get irritable or angry because it was just moving around from arms to arms. So, so in this way, the child, of course, felt that sense of being seen, heard, and loved in an unconditional way. 
But in the um, the other way that women had such strong had such strong position had to do with the fact that little boys already at an early age were nurturing and looking after infants and young animals. So clearly, they maintain more of their feminine nurturing side. They had a clear sense of the difference between male and female, but the male and female roles were not polarized. And I saw with the modern economy coming in, literally Barbie and Rambo coming in as role models for young children. And I saw also how children are like these little sponges, you know, absorbing all these cultural influences so quickly. So already four and five-year-olds were affected by these polarizing role models. In the traditional culture, one of the more moving things that got me thinking was when I saw this 13-year-old boy cooing over a baby just the way a granny would. And I realized I had never seen that in any culture outside of Ladakh. You know, it had, it had never really occurred to me, you know, just how and why that would be so rare. But again, ancient futures, once we have the ancient futures perspective, our eyes can be open to how intuitively we're moving back to these things. So, you know, now you see men carrying babies on their bodies, we see so many changes, which, which I also write about in the book, that we're intuitively coming back. So the only need for rush is because the dominant system has still been allowed to continue expanding. Other than that, I'm quite sure we would find our way home to community and nature. We long for it, it's in our DNA, and it's so wonderful to see that it is happening despite, you know, these constraints that keep pushing us in the opposite direction. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast. And thank you to Helena for sharing your learnings from Ladakh. You can read more about her and seven other incredible humans bringing about the next economy in issue 55 of Dumbo Feather magazine. You can also read more about Helena's experiences in Ladakh in her book, Ancient Futures. We've included a link to both in our show notes. This edited conversation was produced by our digital editor, Lizzie Martin. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for Dumbo Feather's next conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. And for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at DumboFeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast is sponsored by Bellroy, a company that puts its heart, soul and countless design hours into helping the world carry with greater simplicity. Their range includes bags, wallets, work accessories and loads more. I recently transferred my wallet over to the Bellroy Pocket in Alabaster. It fits my phone, Dumbo Feather business cards, cash, as well as my favourite lip gloss, and it looks great too. As a certified B Corp, Bellroy constantly pursues better ways to source their materials, reduce their impact on the environment, aid animal welfare, and make sure that their products last as long as possible. To find out more about Bellroy and our other B Corp friends, head to dumbofeather.com forward slash by better by B.